grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Worship at Home for Valentine's Day, February 14th, in the year of our Lord, 2021. I pray that you are all happy and warm in your homes this morning. You know, last week was pretty cold all by itself. And I saw that there were plenty of people who brought blankets, and to be honest, I was even struggling with the cold. And you know that if I'm cold, it's just too darn cold. So I hope that we can have a meaningful time of worship together, even if it is just from our own. To get things started off today, I ask you to take a moment and breathe deeply. Take some time to really gather yourself. That is, to gather up all the frayed ends of your spirit that have been split apart over the course of the week and allow the Holy Spirit to tie them back together. May that spirit move among us as we worship.
And now please join me in our invocation. May the Lord be with you. Let us pray. God of mercy, before his death, your son went to the mountaintop and you revealed his glory. As the prophets bore witness to him, you proclaimed him your beloved, and then he returned to die among us. Like him, help us face evil with courage, knowing that all things, even death itself, are subject to your transforming power. Amen. Our first hymn today is Be Thou My Vision. As our individual stories unfold, dark and full of pain, enfold them with the healing power of your story. Swallow up the shadows of our lives with the light of your word, that we may be saved from all ignorance and falsehood. Through Christ, the Word made flesh, we pray. Amen. Our first lesson today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-6. through 6. 
And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Gospel lesson comes to us from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were all terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I wish to preach to you from the title, Murder in the Garden of Faith and Doubt. Murder in the Garden of Faith and Doubt. Please pray with me. And now, most holy and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So do you ever have doubts? And I mean real doubts here not uh i doubt this is going to be a good sermon right but but doubts about your purpose doubts about your destiny doubts about even your eternity 
Do you ever doubt God? I remember one particular sermon I heard when I was in youth group years ago. It just burned into my brain. And our youth pastor gave this, this whole teaching about the difference between doubt and faith. And in, in the midst of his talk, he set the two ideas up as polar opposites, right? That, that faith is good and doubt is bad. And he talked about living by faith versus living by doubt. And how as a Christian, your faith should be unshakable, unflappable, unassailable. And I think I remember that little sermon so well all these years later because it made me feel kind of like I might have been a fake or a fraud because I had my doubts I had doubts about Jesus I had doubts about God I had doubts about the whole thing and I remember sitting there as I, I contemplating my doubts Wondering if I should even still call myself a Christian. But now that I've reached the ripe old age of 38, I'm starting to realize that that's really the wrong way to think about it. That doubt isn't the opposite of faith. So much as it is that Doubt is the soil from which faith grows. The same way that courage grows out of fear or inspiration grows out of boredom. Those things aren't opposites. They're actually symbiotes. They, they need one another. We have a name for those who have courage, without any fear they're called fools and we have a name for inspiration without boredom it's called anxiety and yes we have a name for those who have faith without doubt they're called zealots and in their wake you will find nothing but ruin and destruction. No, we should be comfortable and even eager to own the fact that sometimes we have doubts. We should be in a community where, where it is okay to talk about our doubts, to talk through our doubts, like turning over the soil of a garden. Believe it or not, I still have doubts sometimes. I don't know if that's really something you want to hear your vicar say or not, but it is true. You know, I've, I've devoted my life to this God person, this Jesus guy, this Holy Ghost thingy. And, and, and every once in a while, I find myself caught wondering, 
if it's all a bunch of mumbo jumbo. I wonder if it's something that we cling to to make ourselves feel better. And then, like a cold night, it passes and the sun comes out in the morning. Did I ever tell you about the time I almost committed murder? It was my first year in ministry, and I got a call from a local hospital that said that they had a woman there who was very near death. She didn't have any friends or family in the area, but a niece had called, I think from Arizona, and told them that this particular woman used to be a member of our church. Now, she wasn't listed on any of the membership roles, and no one remembered her, but I went out there anyway to see if I could offer her some comfort during her final hours. But I was not prepared for what was waiting for me. As soon as I stepped in the door, the metallic odor of blood was unmistakable. I peeked behind the curtain to see a nurse attending to a woman who was well into her 90s, lying there on the bed, blood splattered all over her body, all kinds of tubes going down her throat and into her nose, monitors beeping and flashing all around her, eyes wide open, showing nothing but fear and confusion like a defenseless animal caught in a trap. The nurse said that she was in the last stages of dementia, that her brain was so sick that it was beginning to tell her bodily organs to shut down. She stopped eating days ago, but in the absence of a living will, they, they had to give her a feeding tube. But the tube was uncomfortable going through her nose and down her throat, so she kept trying to pull it out. So they had to restrain her. They had to tie her arms to the bed. And in her struggling, she was actually even able to use her fingertips to rip her IVs out of her arm, which is why there was so much blood splattered on her body. So not only did they have to tie her down, they had to put these mittens on her hands so she wouldn't hurt herself. The nurse left and all I could do was stare. At first, I was angry at the hospital for keeping this woman alive. I mean, she was obviously so scared and confused and in an obvious state of pain with no hope for recovery. And yet they were taking these measures to, to keep her broken heart right on pumping. But then, in a wave... Of doubt and self-righteousness, I thought. You know, 
I could just end this right now. Now, trust me, I never had a thought like this before, and thankfully, I've never had one since. But I looked at that poor woman sitting in that bed, like a suffering animal, and I just wanted to put her down. I saw an extra pillow sitting on the chair, and brothers and sisters, in that moment, I contemplated the unthinkable. I looked at the woman, and I thought I could make this all be over. And I remember very distinctly wondering, standing there in my black shirt, in my bright white clergy collar, with my prayer book in my hand, if God is so good, then how could God allow this to go on? If God is so wonderful, so worthy of our praise and worship, then how could I be looking at this right now? And yes, in those moments of darkness, in that hospital room, even your own sheepdog wondered if God existed at all. And then something inside me broke, and I buried my own weeping face in that pillow. I took a few moments and got myself together. I knelt beside her bed, opened up my prayer book, took her mittened hand, and started to say prayers. After a few moments... That cold, lifeless hand I was holding began to grip my own. And it started to squeeze, not with the frantic force of someone who was confused and dying, but with the gentle, steady pressure of a praying woman, of a faithful woman. A woman who may not have known where she was or even why she was there, but who nevertheless still seemed to recognize a prayer when she felt it. And in that morning, something changed. Something was transfigured before my eyes. Seeing her faith restored my own. That even after everything else had been stripped away from her, her home, her family, her friends, her mind, her life, she could still lie there and pray. And then I realized that below Everything else, even below pain and doubt, grace was still there somewhere. To put it in biblical language for you, that morning I saw past the veil. You know, St. Paul is always talking about the veil, this dark pall 
that hides the grace of the world, that covers the light. He speaks of the God of this world using a lowercase g, and, and we usually take that to mean Satan or, or the devil, the one who, who seems to rule over a universe of death and meaninglessness. And he's thrown a kind of wet blanket over our eyes to keep our minds from comprehending the grace and the goodness of this world. Now, at this point in the gospel story, Peter, James, and John were covered with that veil. Sure, they had followed this Jesus guy for a couple years at this point, and boy, they had sure seen some amazing things, but now the wheels were starting to fall off. They saw Jesus heal the sick. But for everyone healed, there were ten more who remained sick. For every poor person that found hope through Jesus' ministry, twenty more still struggled to survive. John the Baptist, the most righteous man who had ever lived, had been executed by King Herod. And to top it all off, Jesus said that before this was all over, he'd be executed too. And so Peter especially had launched into a a full-blown revolt. Do you remember that story where Peter actually takes Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him? He has a come-to-Jesus meeting with Jesus. And you remember what Jesus said to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. Man, things are dark at this point in the story. But then what Jesus does is he takes Peter, James, and John up this mountain. And it says that he is transfigured before them. Literally, the scripture says that he is metamorphosized before them. This is where we actually get our word metamorphosis. In in Greek, meta means big and morphe means change. So the idea was that he was completely changed. You see, up there on that mountain, just... When their faith was at its lowest, when it was at its nadir, Jesus pulls back the curtain for Peter, James, and John. Just when they would have been tempted to give up hope, when they would have been tempted to turn back around and go back to their families and villages, back to their old jobs and their old lives, Just at that moment, Jesus pulls back the veil and lets them see his glory. Jesus, suddenly robed in white, conversing with ancient heroes of the faith standing next to him, light dancing all around, 
Peter, James, and John seeing past the curtain of darkness, seeing past the curtain of sickness and death and poverty and oppression that had surrounded them for most of their lives. And they were given just a glimpse of the glory of God that was filling the world through the ministry of Jesus. Have you ever had a vision like that? Now, I don't mean a literal vision of dancing light or the spirits of long dead saints. I mean a vision of beauty and peace and holiness that was able to break through the veil and, and, and touch your heart right when you needed it to happen. Have you ever been granted that kind of vision? One that lifted your spirit and implanted strength in your heart to carry on? Because, friends, visions like that don't just happen. And you know what? You, you can't go looking for them. You can't go searching until you find one because visions like that have to be given. They have to be a free gift of grace. And they only ever seem to come along at just the right time. For a split second... Peter, James, and John were given the opportunity to see the salvation that was waiting for them. Just the, the smallest little peek at what was on the other side of all the pain and, and, and weakness they were struggling with. They could see that even though things were hard now, even though things were almost too hard to bear right now, there was still a hidden glory breaking upon the world. But let me say this also. I think it was their doubt. I think it was their struggle and their frustration that actually made the vision possible. The doubt is what made the vision necessary. The doubt was the soil from which the vision was able to grow. That's the amazing thing about the faith of Peter, James, and John. That that it needed this this kind of agitation to it. It needed this kind of frustration. It it it, it needed to be turned oil over and, and broken up, just like soil, in, in order for Jesus to be able to plant that seed of faith. And it's worth noting between you, me, and the fence post that the transfiguration did not put an end to their doubts, right? And when Jesus was being crucified, James ran off and hid 
Peter still denied Jesus three times. John was the only one of them who stayed faithful. So it's not like you have a moment of epiphany and all of a sudden your faith is sealed and then you never ever have a second thought again. That's not how faith works. It isn't a building. It's not a a structure that you can lay down and cement and rebar and, and just let it stand for the whole rest of your life. No, faith is a garden. It's planted by Christ in the soil of doubt and confusion, and it has to be tended. It has to be cared for. It has to be loved and coaxed into growth and constant renewal. See, that's what Lent is all about. That's the season that we are headed for here. It's about taking a look at the soil of your soul and pulling out all the old leaves and the dead weeds that accumulated over the fall and the winter and and, and turning it all over and getting it ready to receive something new. That's why we start with ashes. Why we start with dust. This upcoming Wednesday, when we receive again the mark of the ashes, they will be a symbol of our commitment to cultivating the garden of our souls. Do you know that moment after the last frost of winter, but before the springtime really begins there's that that moment okay when you walk around your house and you see just how much work you have ahead of you the trees that need trimmed the bushes that need shaped the flower beds are a mess you got a whole group of leaves behind the air conditioner somewhere and you, you, you can't even tell where, where the yard is supposed to end and the mulch is supposed to begin and right then in that moment there's a time of choosing and you can throw up your hands and say ah fooey i'm not doing any of that this year or you can put up put your hands on your hips and take a deep breath and grab a rake. Showing up for Ash Wednesday is grabbing the rake. It is awakening from the cold winter slumber of the soul and starting once again to till the doubt and trim the fear and plant the seeds of faith believing that in due time they will grow to produce a harvest of grace and peace i don't know about you but that's how i'll be spending my ash wednesday and I hope you'll join me.
I offer you these words in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. you into a time of prayer and let me say i know there are some folks who would like very much for me to read off the prayers of the people that we usually use in our worship service in this time but i think it's important that i give you all a moment to pray either on your own or with your families in your homes to have a moment of connection in prayer, even if you don't say a word, rather than having my voice continue to drone on over it all. But I would like to ask you to remember some special people from our community in your prayers today. Our sister Dorothy Zellers passed away this week. And we'd like to ask for continued prayers for the Nep family on the death of Ken's brother, Ron, and that his niece, Erica, is still recovering from COVID-19. Cindy Maxwell, a friend of Nikki Hetrick, is also struggling with COVID. Pat Yorkie is home and recovering from her surgery this week. And Randy Reeves has cancer that his return to his lymph nodes. And now, I'll offer you a moment to pause this podcast and pray in whatever way you feel most comfortable. final hymn is open my eyes that I may see
Doubt gets a pretty bad rap in church sometimes. But I'm here to tell you, the doubt isn't a bad thing, or an evil thing, or, or, or even a, a, a faithless thing. Doubt is necessary. That's what comes from living in a world where darkness and pain exist. I, I'd be worried if you didn't have doubts, if you walked around in a constant state of certainty, I'd be worried about what you might be capable of. No, that's not the way Christians ought to think about doubt. Doubt is the soil. Faith is the seed. And grace and love are the fruit. And now, may the love of God the Father, the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you now and always. Amen. I'll see you all on Wednesday for our socially distant Ash Wednesday drive-up times. You can uh, check out the newsletter and get all the details on that. Grace and peace. <laughs>